welcome to Tegan Goes Vegan. I'm your host, Tegan Karuna. This week, I spoke with Steve Lawrence, the owner of Vegan Commissary, which is a wholesale and retail vegan prepared foods company here in Philadelphia. He and I have a really interesting conversation about what the transition has been like in the culinary field from uh, very being very vegan non-friendly to being much more vegan friendly. And with that conversation, we talk about what it's like to run a vegan restaurant and what it's like to run a vegan company and some of the business practices that go along with that and working with your customers and your clients and how to kind of work against the vegan stereotype of being very like spacey and flighty and all of that kind of stuff. And also how to convince non-vegans or not convince, but how to show non-vegans that vegan food is good. It is just as good as non-vegan food and also doesn't have the uh, cruelty associated with it. We get into a good conversation about living wage and what that actually means for restaurants and the food industry. Vegan Commissary was at the forefront of making sure that its employees received a living wage here in Philly. Steve has given a lot of thought to what the actual business implications of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour actually would be. So that's like the fight for 15 movement. And and so he and I talk quite a bit about that. And I think that it is relevant particularly because we are talking about equity and we're talking about paying people a reasonable amount of money for the work that they do. And that seems like a very vegan issue to me. Um, Even though it's not directly related to animals, I think that one of the things that I'm learning through this show is that being vegan is a lot more than just what animals, you know, what we can do for animals. It's much more about creating a more compassionate world. And I think that Steve has given a lot of thought to this issue and comes from a perspective of understanding what it means for food service businesses to increase the the minimum wage to 15. And, you know, it's a much more nuanced understanding of what all of this actually means. And and I learned a lot uh, from from that conversation. So, you know, we talk about, you know, kind of like the normal vegan stuff. And then we go into this conversation about living wage and minimum wage and what that actually means. I had a really good time talking with Steve. And I think that this conversation will be especially interesting to anybody who's interested in what it's actually like to work in a restaurant and what it's like to be surrounded by... um by food service people all the time. It's a it's a special breed of people, and uh, you know I I feel like I can I'm qualified to say that having grown up in a food service family and worked in uh, food service myself for a number of years, I feel like I can attest to the fact that the <laughs> people who choose to work in restaurants are uh, you have to be a certain kind of person to do that. So. <laughs> We, we have a really interesting conversation about that. And if you've ever been curious about what it's actually like to work in a restaurant, we, we kind of get into that. So here we go. This is my conversation with Steve Lawrence. All right. Hi, Steve Lawrence. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Tegan. How are you? I'm great. Um, you are the owner of Vegan Commissary, a vegan restaurant in South Philadelphia. Well, actually... Not no. to cut you off, but we're not so much of a restaurant anymore. Oh, no. We, we moved to a new location. And in our new location at 1429 Wolf Street, we do our wholesale business and catering and events. And instead of the sit-down, because we don't really have space for people to come and sit down, we have open market days on Saturdays, every Saturday. And we have our customers come in and we make uh, coffee and pastries, cinnamon buns, and sometimes biscuits and whatever the chefs kind of feel like. And then we do breakfast sandwiches on Philly bread, English muffins. Oh, Philly muffins. Yeah, they're great. (laughs) And we do, um, one of our chefs makes one of amazing tamales. And uh, we usually have some other of her creations, enchiladas or tacos or things like that. So we have some hot food and we have a whole uh, refrigerator full of things that you can carry out. 
All right. So that's even more. That's now you have things that you can take home with you and eat all week. Exactly. That's Since we awesome. can't feed you too much on Saturday, we, we figured we'll send some stuff home with you and feed you all week. Yeah. That, I mean, hey, that actually <laughs> sounds pretty good. It's better than four-day-old leftovers. <laughs> well, let's hope. <laughs> so how did you get to the point where you own a vegan food? You've owned a vegan commissary. That's really what it is now, right? That's absolutely yeah. what it is. Well, that was kind of our vision from the beginning. Um, if you want the most recent history... I mean, I can tell you about becoming a vegan way back in the day, but if you're asking how the business itself came about, uh, a few years ago, I was managing uh, uh, a local restaurant, and uh, there were two locations out on the main line, and um, a restaurant and music venue. Um, so, and, you know, as part of my job, I put myself out of work. I basically said to them, the way to fix everything that you need that needs to be fixed here is for you not to have me here and for me to, you know, we'll set everything up and get people in place and then save the money that you're paying me and spend a little bit on the people that are here and, and um, you know, go on from there. So that's kind of what they did. And at that point, the economy was robust and I had a whole lot of... Um, consulting work. I helped open a couple restaurants in town and I was doing recipe development and I had about a year and a half or two years worth of work lined up and then the economy went bad. And so suddenly, you know, I'm a, a 50 plus year old restaurant person and nobody wants to hire me to, you know, wait tables or do anything at that age. And I couldn't get a job and I really didn't want to go, go into the mainstream, you know, start cooking, you know, meat and things again. I've been vegan for a long time and Friends of mine that had a, um, a produce market in the Comcast Center had been bugging me for a while to come and do um, some food for them, some prepared food, soups and things like that. And so because I was broke and, and had no other alternatives, that seemed like a good idea <laughs> at the time. And so we, I started doing it literally out of my apartment. I borrowed uh some so I didn't really I had no money I, I mean I basically opened up for nothing I, I went and got food my brother has a health food store in Willow Grove and I went and good, got some that's a good connection he fronted me absolutely <laughs> he fronted me an order you know to get started with and I paid him out of the sales and that's really how we started some uh, friends of mine that I knew in the industry uh, had started a coffee shop nearby Good Karma and they were my first customer and those those guys and Last Drop they were my first customers and I think of the first order I delivered one a jar of dressing for $7. That was the first delivery. And uh, and then a couple of things to last drop, and that's how we got started. And um, now we have a business. We out, kind of outgrew that space. And we had a little restaurant for a while, which was really successful at brunch, but not so much at lunch and dinner. And we, we had planned always to grow the wholesale business. That was always the focus of the business. The the restaurant was sort of the part where we were going to have fun with the customers, you know, get some immediate feedback and enjoy the, you know, the compliments and all that sort of stuff. Because being restaurant people, you know, you you really want that kind of immediacy. And what we found in the restaurant was that that was great for recipe development. The you know we we develop something and serve it for brunch and we knew kind of in five minutes whether I was going right. to make it or not <laughs> yeah and, you and, see the plates coming back and, and you know well you know the yeah. customers are great nowadays young people are not shy they're very knowledgeable about food they're clear about what they like and they're very willing to say if you ask the right questions they're willing to tell you the truth so if you really want to hear um, and you're willing to hear the truth about your products it's too salty it's not crisp enough whatever the thing is people will tell you if you if you develop that relationship with them and build the environment where they they feel comfortable to do so and we found that we were you know it enabled us to save m much time off our, the development process normally you have to make things 10 or 15 times we could make them two or three times and within the three weeks we could have a, a commercial you know ready to go product that was you know well tested and and uh, we know we were pretty confident that that it would it would work. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that you were making vegan food and vegans are generally just very excited to have a restaurant, like have a place they can go to get things that they can eat, and so they were very willing to be kind of part of the process. Well, I think I think it's yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, one of the criticisms I always have about the vegan food business is that sometimes I think people don't have they're everyone's so excited to have anything that we're not quite as discerning as we, as we could be everything if you read 
you know, veg news, anything they've ever eaten in their entire lives has been the greatest, <laughs> most amazing, unbelievable thing. And, you know, I mean, we're all smart enough, you know, I'm bad at math, but I know that not 100% of everything that you eat is the most amazing thing you ever eat. So I think we need to be a little more discerning sometimes because maybe someone would work on making a better thing if we said, hey, you know what, it's okay, I'm glad to have it, I'm happy to eat it, but I could really, I think it could be better than maybe people would work to make it better. Um, uh, but I also think that young people nowadays are just more educated. You know, when I got into the business and I, I've been working in a restaurant business my whole life. My dad was in the business. I grew up in the business. You know, there wasn't that feedback from the customers. Even if you didn't like something, you said, okay. You know, you said, yes, it was fine. And, you know, nowadays people aren't like that unless you, unless you create the environment where you obviously don't want to hear what they have to say. If you have the rest of the type of staff that is not really making connections with with customers and things like that, which we were very lucky that we had great staff that really cared about and connected with the customers. And I think customers felt really free to give us information and give us feedback. And I was grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I think it works really well. But I think young people are just more knowledgeable nowadays and they know when something's too salty and they're not really going to say, you know, I mean, they might think you don't care and not say anything, but if you ask them, they'll tell you. Yeah, that's really interesting because definitely, so I also come from a restaurant family and I worked in food service for uh, a good a good amount of time and then worked as a personal chef all before becoming vegan. And I know from my time in that kind of world that the, even from when I was young, it, it feels very different now. Like, like the, the chefs that I hung out with when I was a kid, because they were all my parents' friends, very different attitude than the way that we think about food now. And do you have like an idea of why things have changed so much? Well, I think it's exposure and education. I remember uh, being a student at the restaurant school in, in 1977, in the third class from the restaurant school in Philadelphia. And the customers were very silent. You know, they were just didn't want to get embarrassed by the waiters. They just, you know, sat there quietly and were happy to have you bring them whatever it was and tell them whatever it was. And they just, you know, didn't have much to say. And nowadays, people are so educated. They watch the Food Network. And, you know, the Food Network is now, you know, people are throwing food at each other and right. whatever the yeah. thing is. It's a little bit more, you know, and I, just, I think it's a generational thing. And it, it, part of it is that, you know, the younger generations are much more casual and they're not bound up in the in the traditions and the, 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 you know, there's no place. I mean, there was, you know, what I mean by that is that the server had his place and the customer had his place. They had roles and there were, there were prescribed behaviors and, you know, the younger generation doesn't really care for all that sort of thing. And one of my teachers who was, uh, who taught us about service, who was a really brilliant person, especially in, and wonderful in the Philadelphia, uh, restaurant scene, his name was Rob McMahon. He always used to say that, you know, service was created to enable serfs and peasants to serve nobility. So, of course, there was no conversation. So the rules of service, as they evolved from that, informal, that became formal service in France and in, in Europe and Austria and, and uh, in countries like that, evolved with a language that was unspoken. One of the other people that taught us service was an Austrian man who was the, the most amazing dining room person I've ever seen. And, but he, he studied for seven years before he became a busboy. And you, wow. can you imagine? I mean, uh, Americans, you know, as soon as they walk in the kitchen, all right, I peel the potato, I'm ready to cook. You know? and I, and <laughs> right, it's like right. there has nothing to do with it. So, you know, the, the downside of that is that I don't think you get, it takes longer to as- acquire the, the specific skills. You know, we get all, all excited about the fancy tricks and things. But the great chefs are the ones who have the knowing in their hands. You know, they can they can pick up the food and they're one with their food. And, you know, what they create is much different um, than I think a lot of the stuff that's created today. Not that there aren't really great and wonderful, talented chefs and, and cooks. But I think that um, it's just a different it's a different time now. And, you know, Americans are not. Uh, so Rob always used to say the Americans are not comfortable with service. We don't like thinking that. We don't like being servants and we don't like being treated as servants and we don't like to think that we're condescending to treat people as servants. And until you get to the point where we have to start talking about tipping and paying and all that sort of stuff, I think the field becomes reversed. But that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. 
that's really that's really interesting. I, I like that you were able to get a lot of that historical perspective of like where service comes from because traditional service is extremely formal, and I, I would argue that we probably you would really have to seek it out at this point to have the kind of experience that you would have had in a restaurant in 1960. You're absolutely right. And I think that um, it's an, it's interesting talking about this with you because there's not very many people uh, I can have this conversation with <laughs> that, especially that are that are young because they just don't know any of that. So when I tell stories, it's kind of like, you know, I could be telling ghost stories or whatever because it's something that they, they understand basically intellectually, but they don't really have any emotional or experiential connection with it. But I think that... Um, you know, it re- that really informs. It was it was one of the biggest issues we had in the restaurant was that I continually had to be after the servers. I, I was always very frustrated that you know the image of the vegan restaurant as you know a bunch of hippies. Mm-hmm. You know, dude, your water's coming. You know, we're filtering it through rocks. And be, <laughs> you know, we'll have it like in an hour. Right. You know, these people. You know, people come in. They have a half an hour for lunch, or they you know want to spend an hour for brunch or whatever it is. They want service the way it is in any restaurant and the and the rules of service the way you get uh the things that make you good at service and the things that make uh, expedient service are the same whether you're serving meat fish whatever doesn't matter you know the that part of the restaurant is the same and it's really hard to get to get vegans and people who are you know have a little bit more consciousness about certain things to invest in that and to understand that it's it's very difficult that's really uh, that's an interesting cultural issue that I, I would like to talk with you about is that traditionally uh, kitchen people are incredibly meat centric and <laughs> animal centric and you know now especially with pork being like the most beloved <laughs> fetishized <laughs> food out there um, it, and so it sounds correct me. If I'm wrong, you were not vegan when you went to culinary school or when you went to the restaurant school. I was not. And now you are. So how has that transition worked for you? Because you were trained in a partic- in, the, in the very standard kind of mentality about food. And then you, over time, have changed. Well, the transition happened because my father, uh, about a year or so after I left restaurant school, um, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And so... As part of his treatment, he became macrobiotic. And I'm not going to go into all about macrobiotics at the moment. It's, that's a whole other show also. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a conscious way of eating, and it was a way of eating to restore his health, which it did. He went into remission. He had a very uh, long remission for about three or four years. And you know he became a different person. We, we were able to heal our relationship. We had really been estranged at that point. And so he you know kind of operated differently once his... His, uh, you know, diet change, and he he just became a different person. He was he'd been bald all of my life, and he was growing hair on his head, and he was you know riding his bike twenty five miles a day, and he had a whole different relationship with the world, basically. And you know, my dad was um, he was a wonderful restaurateur. He was a wonderful businessman, very successful. Um, he was a great cook. You know, he would. I mean, we my brothers and I still talk about. The few nights he ever came home to cook dinner for us because it would take him four hours and and the kitchen would be a disaster. But but every single thing was like so special and so fantastic. You know, I mean, the first time we ever had waffle fries, you know, he hand cut them with a little little uh, zigzag cutter, and you know, it took him an hour and a half to fry them and whatever. But you know, we we were always dying of hunger when he ate. But but every little thing was so special, and that was kind of you know the love for food and the adventure and the culture of that. Uh, my dad was always taking us to he loved peasant food he loved hole in the wall places and we, the Reading Terminal was one of our oh, favorite places yeah, to go yeah. back in the day when it was so dark you couldn't literally see what you were eating but I remember sitting there and being a little kid eating a knockwurst that was probably the size of my arm you know in and you know with sauerkraut and mustard and all of those things that kids don't eat but my dad you know somehow it was fun and it was adventurous and you know that the love of all that is what I experience in the business all the time. And so um, 
I do, I do want to interject because um, I was laughing a lot to myself when you were describing your father and his cooking style because that is exactly what I grew up with. <laughs> was like right. my mom was a terrible cook, and that's why I learned how to cook yeah. because I needed to get something better. <laughs> and then my dad would cook like mm, couple too. times a year maybe, and yeah. whenever he did, the kitchen was a total wreck, and it took forever. And it sure. was just like I was having like flashbacks from my own childhood. So I what? I appreciate knowing that other people have gone through that. Too. Yeah, I think that I think that um, you know everyone who I think who cooks, every chef, um, certainly every chef I've ever talked to has anyone who's really committed to the industry and who really loves what they do. Um, has some connection with food in that way, you know, somebody in the family or an experience or so- something that where it connects to something greater in your life. It's not just about you know eating, making a sandwich, and I'm not hungry anymore. Right, right. And uh, so as my as my dad, um, you know, as part of that process, we became macrobiotic, and then uh, I realized that you know maybe if people ate healthier before they were ready to die, things would be different, you know, and start, as I started learning more about macrobiotics, I worked at macrobiotic summer camp, met Misho Kushi. Um, and, and, but the most, you know, amazing thing was meeting a whole bunch of young children, teenagers, like 12 to 14 year olds that had been raised macrobiotically their whole life. And that was like meeting another race of people because they were kids, they were running around, it was summer, it was camp, you know. But if you said something to them, they would stop on a dime, be totally present. They All of them could cook and use knife, and they had better knife skills than most of the cooks that I was working with. And they could make a meal and do anything. But they were just so conscious and so clear and so present. To me, it was a revelation. And, you know, they were full of life and beans and boys chasing girls and girls chasing boys, just like normal kids. But just their presence and their energy was was really remarkable to me. And it, it kind of marked a, a change in my own consciousness. And, and at that point, I started looking for opportunities to to cook differently. And of course, is, there, is macrobiotic entirely vegan? No, macrobiotics, okay. um, the, the basic tenets of macrobiotics are to eat a balanced diet and to eat um, for your lifestyle and your energy and your physiology. So it's a little bit more complex figuring out, you know, what your body needs. And, but it's, the, it's finding a balance between uh, yin and yang, which, which would be acid and alkaline or potassium and sodium. You know, those, there, there are many different ways to express all of that. But um, it's, it's basically trying to find the balance, your own personal balance. Like your body is constantly seeking balance in the universe and this is finding your this is finding your the the microcosm the balance within your own little micro universe of your body and that so that doesn't necessarily exclude animal products no they they um basically there it's a very non-judgmental it may seem differently but it's really a very non-judgmental philosophy the point is um, if you raise cows and you take their milk and you do whatever you do with them and then at some point the cow expires and you and you process it and eat it for food and the cow you know plowed the field with you and did all those other things whatever you know the, the animal served its purpose in life and you eat it that's part of the life cycle and there's nothing is inherently bad but if you sit in an office all day and you're playing video games and you're, you know, or working on a computer, your, your physiology, your, your four generations removed from the physiology that could handle eating a steak. So if you, you know, the human body can absorb, uh, can digest and process four ounces of animal protein at any one time. So if you eat a 16 ounce steak, three quarters of that is going to become, be stored as fat in your body, no matter how well you chew it, no matter how well you process it, no matter how well you digest it, it's going to become fat. If you process, if you eat it with carbohydrates at the same time. So if you have steak and mashed potatoes, your body will only process the the protein first and all of the carbohydrates and all of the other nutrients that you're absorbing at that point or ingesting at that point will become, will be stored as fat. That's just how your body works. So it's the same thing. If it's a similar thing with eating sugar, if you eat sugar, it basically stops your digestion. So if you have a steak and then you eat a piece of cake, you're basically not going to digest any of it until the sugar is processed, which is going to take a while. So it, you know, I think part of our, you know, whatever the relationship we have with food is, is based on ignorance. We don't really understand how our bodies work. 
no one really wants us to understand. It's in, you know, it's not in the interest of any of the people that sell us food for us to know how our bodies work. Because if we did, we'd eat differently and we'd buy differently. And you know, there are lots of different things. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a for me, it was a, it was a consciousness. It was you know, once my consciousness was was uh, raised to that level, to I had some understanding of another point of view. I started seeking out more things, and you know, it led inevitably to being ve- to, to being uh, vegan. I was vegetarian for a while, and you know, it's a it's a process. I, one of the things is that when I decided to give something up or stop eating something, I would just stop, and and realizing that it's a zigzag process. That someday you're going to have a hamburger, or you might have a little chicken stock, or you know, something like that. And it's not, you didn't fail God, you know, no one's, there's no lightning coming, you know, you just start again the next day. It's a, it's a little bit, it's not exactly a straight line from wherever you are to wherever you want to be. And that pretty much works for everything in life. Right, you know, any change. You're making changes, yeah, yeah. right. It's, you know, transitions are difficult and it's not a linear path. And, um, but there were, no, you know, there were, so I was vegetarian for a while and, you know, I, but I, I tried to give things, to give things up one, one at a time or two at a time and, uh, you know, and and then just stick to it and and do the best you can, and not really beat myself up if I if I really wanted uh, you know ice cream or a piece of cake or whatever it was. But um, but the other thing was I started really working to find alternatives. I started because of my training as a chef. I I really wanted to eat good food. I didn't want to eat a lot of the things that were available or things that were you know cooked at that point um, were were okay and you know but they weren't great. And so it was, it was really my, um, one of my, um, just personal for me was finding ways to make things that tasted better and, you know, keep, keep working on it. So that's kind of, uh, and that's how we, you know, kind of work at it nowadays too. One of the reasons that I, so I became vegan by doing a 30 day experiment. I didn't realize that it was a, um, something that, that the various organ, like advocacy organ organizations, um, really push that kind of like, uh, do it for four weeks or whatever. (laughs) But one of the reasons, there were a lot of reasons, but one of them was that I kind of felt like I was bored with cooking standard food and I wanted the challenge of making vegan food. I wanted to take out a bunch of things and, um, and see what I could do if I, if I really restricted my ingredient list. And what I found was that it actually wasn't that restrictive at all. I think that's that's exactly true. The the um, uh, you know I say that all the time that you know there no matter how many and it's great that I I totally admire the you know whole animal cookery and all of those things because it's much more uh, ecological and it's it's more respectful of the of the life the animal gave for that meal uh, to use the animals in that way but still beef is beef and you know pork is pork and blah 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 so um, but the and you know and it's obviously true that carrots are carrots and you know but now there you know nowadays there are like eight different kinds of carrots and there's four parsnips and there's 13 rutabagas and you know so the the it's 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 ad infinitum you know the the options of cooking vegetables you know, sort of when you're young, you know, you want to do all of everything. I want to collect all the baseball cards and I want to, you know, and I want to cook everything that can be cooked. And now you realize, like, forget it, man. It's just not going to happen. There's just a million things that a million possible permutations and combinations of vegetables and grains and beans and all of those sorts of things that you can cook. And to me, it just opens up everything. And it really challenges you as a cook. I, I say um, uh, on many occasions, you, you'll look at a menu and someone will say, wow, we have all this vegetarian stuff. And I'll say, no, you have no vegetarian stuff. You have a menu of cheese dishes that have vegetables in it <laughs> yeah. because every single dish has cheese in it. And that's just not a balanced menu. You can, you know, you can be a meat eater or a cheese eater unless you're, you know, unless you're, it's a fondue restaurant, right. <laughs> you know, the, the, um, or a cheese shop. The, um, you know, you wouldn't have a whole section of your menu where every single item has cheese in it. But chefs are, are uncomfortable. I think they want to do vegetables. And many chefs do great vegetables. There, we um, have a cookbook that I've gotten from my, uh, some of my staff people that great chefs cook vegan. And it's all, um, it's all vegetarian uh, vegan dishes. And some of the techniques are amazing. And some of the stuff that they do is really crazy. But... You know, the chefs are making amazing and wonderful 
vegetable preparations with their meat products now, and the and the proportion of vegetables to the plate, uh, to the, in in proportion to meat on the plate has changed a lot. You're not seeing it's not just three little carrots, right? Yeah. You know, you're yep. seeing nice vegetable preparations, nice starch preparations, potatoes and grains and things like that, and all of those things are being used by the chefs, which popularizes them and helps people learn how to use them and what to do with them. And which all of those all of those things are absolutely great, and um, but I think that uh, you know nowadays people, uh, if you're limiting yourself to putting meat as the six o'clock item, you know, as that's the centerpiece, and you're trying to find things that go with meat, you, you're missing out. Whether you're a chef or you're a home cook, or even if you're just eating, if you're a diner and you only look at meat as the center of the plate, I think you're really narrowing your perspective uh, beyond the point. Uh, you know that's good now nowadays there's so much great cooking being done everywhere in in little mom and pop shops and taquerias in every little place you can find great preparations if you challenge yourself as a chef if you challenge yourself as a cook if you challenge yourself as an eater to eat differently to look at the plate differently um there's a lot of stuff you can experience and and uh you know i think that's the you know some part of the fun of all of this right now definitely and i I have not been vegan for that long. So I I haven't gone through the cultural shift that I think in the last 20 years has really... There's a huge difference now than there was 20 years ago in terms of what is available and how people think about vegetables. We have restaurants like Veg now that are named, you know, some of the most, you know, the best fine dining in the country or whatever. And it's all, it's all vegetables. That's it. That's all they do. Um, and that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. So that's a really interesting transition. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, and I think that you see it on, on many levels that, like I said, you know, you can find, you know, um, in Philadelphia, you have a great uh, culture of gastropubs and, you know, bars and bar food. And, and I think, you know, in, in bang for your buck, they're the best places to spend your money because you're getting really quality preparations from good chefs and good ingredients in those places and maybe you're spending you know $15 for a sandwich but you're not spending $15 for some really mediocre chicken dish you know that you know has been sitting around for three weeks or whatever and, you know it has no creativity to it you could be doing that too so you're getting um, getting great food and I think you are uh, the cooking is is really awesome and you're seeing lots of great vegetable dishes and and uh you know fun foods that people are using i had really great yucca fries in town the other day Mm. and they were absolutely perfect like french fries very light and um, the best ones i've ever had so you know there's all kinds of great things that you can try now and people are making great sauces to go with these things and and really fun uh but really high quality preparations i think the bar has definitely been raised for all kinds of food yeah it's um i was just at a restaurant this weekend up here in North Philly, um, where they had they have a lot of vegetarian and vegan options on the menu, but it wasn't clear how it worked. Like how the way that their menu was set up, it, it was not clear like what was actually vegan and what was not. <laughs> and it turned out that all of the sauces were vegan because they had things like aioli and cream sauce. And so I was there with other vegans, and we're all like, oh, I don't know about this place. Like, <laughs> what are they doing? And it turned out everything, all of the sauces were vegan. We were able to eat basically everything that had been marked vegetarian was actually vegan unless they threw some cheese on top. So it was really, that was like a a great feeling to know that the standard, like the, the, the baseline was that things were vegan and then they were almost like de-veganized, which I thought was an inch. That's kind of an interesting, it's really an interesting place. I think I know the place you're talking about, but the, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting concept. And I think I think it's great. I think whatever people do with vegetables, and I think whenever I I always make the joke um, when I was when I was younger, uh, anywhere you went, if they wanted to have a vegetable thing on the menu, it was a steamed vegetable plate because you know people were running out to get like steamed broccoli, and and so we always joked that on the restaurant menu we wanted to have a steamed meat plate, and <laughs> so just kind of as a joke, and and. Um, but you know it's it's uh, it's great that that people are cooking you know and they look at food a completely different way now they look at at things you know you don't need to put cream in everything to make it creamy you don't you know there's lots of other techniques you can use and that those are basic things on a menu and you know I've always advocated try and do things as much as you can to appeal to the widest 
number of people. If you're going, even if you're a mainstream restaurant, you're serving meat eaters and omnivores and whatever. And, you know, the things that you can make without dairy that are still great. I mean, there are lots of ways to make emulsions and make sauces that don't require cream and, uh, you know, or butter that make great sauces and then everyone can eat them. And you only have to make one sauce. If you make one good thing, you know, you don't have to make eight versions, you know. Um, And it doesn't have to be the vegan thing. It can just be the thing. It can just be the menu item. And if it's good, people are going to eat it. There's no question. And that's kind of our standard for our wholesale items. All of our wholesale customers are not vegan restaurants or, you know, vegan outlets. They're um, mainstream businesses that that choose to have some vegan product. They like the fact that the customers relate to it and, and it brings them repeat business. But that's kind of our standard is that it can't if the answer to how good is this is, well, it's good. It's OK for vegan. Then, all right, then we have to go back and fix it because it's not can't be very good. It's not good enough. It has to be just something that's good. And, and these because a lot of these places are small, they don't have the option of having, you know, a cranberry muffin and a vegan cranberry muffin. So, you know, if we're going to carry a vegan thing, it has to be good enough to stand on its own. And that's the so that's the standard that we do. And I think that's pretty much, you know, we're just trying to be a regular you know, high quality, well prepared uh, food uh, operation without uh, you know no no animal products. That's all we we you know we we don't want to see we don't see ourselves as being different from any other food operation. That's and, and frankly, that's what I would like to see more of. Is like I don't want to eat subpar food just because I don't <laughs> want it to have butter and eggs in it. I want a good cranberry muffin, and you can do it. I, I mean, you do it. I can do it in my home kitchen. So it can sure. be done. Right. It's just a matter of kind of the changing the, the kind of food culture in general. And, and since we are seeing a little bit of that happening, hopefully there's some hope for the future. Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting point about the muffins there. We, we sell muffins to, I think it's nine different spots now. And we, always encourage them just to say they're muffins. These are muffins. This <laughs> yeah, is a, yeah. this kind of muffin or that kind of muffin. And we never say, and then we encourage them to put up a little note that says, we have vegan, ask about our vegan baked goods. And so every place has done that except for one one place. And in the and all those places have been, it's been successful and the muffins have their own following. And, you know, we're not selling 50 dozen muffins anywhere in a, in a particular day, but... You know, we do a decent business with muffins, and the, the the reception is good, and they the business has grown with the muffins. So, there, except for the one place where they made a big deal out of it being a vegan muffin, in which and we sold a ton of them in the beginning. We sold a huge; it was the most successful of the muffin businesses, you know, the baked good businesses in all of the stores, and uh, until people realized that, and you know, it got kind of beat over the head with the vegan thing. And then the the um, the owners brought in another uh, bakery to bring just to have balance in the in their offerings, have some different offerings. And of course, then people kept uh, started right away saying, "Well, we don't want the vegan things anymore. We just want mainstream." So we ended up not we do other business with them, but not no more baked goods. But it to me, it's it's just a, a mat, matter of educating the store owners how to manage things. And once you have achieved that, once they manage them properly, then the, the customer's expectations are met. Because really, all they're doing is tasting the muffin and going, I like it, I'm eating it tomorrow. So it's really kind of a simple thing. Uh, and uh, But you know that's been the biggest, most significant thing for us, is trying to work with the managers of the businesses to present things in a, in a proper fashion to their customers. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good business strategy, to say, <laughs> ask about the vegan options. Because the vegans are used to... Asking Absolutely. like that's yeah. something we're very comfortable with, so it makes sense to not put the sign out, sure. not ma- not like label something as vegan because there are people who are still very apprehensive sure. about it. It makes so much sense. The yeah, it's it's sad, but there are people who have a knee jerk reaction to lots and lots of things. It's not just vegan things or muffins, um, <laughs> but the uh, um, you know there and there's no overcoming that. You know, people will you know I've seen people. Uh, Find out that something they they've eaten for weeks is muff, uh, you know, is vegan. They go, oh, I don't eat vegan, and you've been eating it for a month. You like it? You think they're great? <laughs> so you know, there's no accounting for that. But we always, I always laugh when people 
call us up and they'll say, all right, is everything you sell vegan? I said, vegan, it says a vegan in the name. We don't want you to worry. But, you know, it relates to what you said earlier about, you know, really being nervous and checking. And so I always give them a hard time about it, but I totally understand because there are lots of places. Somebody did it to me the other day. I said, no, no dairy, no cheese on. So I ordered a sandwich, no dairy. But the part, she put cream cheese on it because she didn't think of it as being cheese. Right. And so I had to, you know, make the point and say, because I react really badly to dairy. But, um, uh, the, you know, it's just, it's just kind of funny how people don't really know. So you do have to be a little mindful sometimes. Yeah, I, I'm learning how to become more explicit that the word <laughs> dairy doesn't actually mean a lot to a lot of people. Right. That because we don't think about cheese as being milk. Like those right. things are not the same right. in a lot of people's minds. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the vegan commissary business model. And I know sure. that one of the, um, my understanding is that one of the hallmarks of the business is that you pay everyone a living wage. We do. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that? Well, we were actually the first ones. I always say this because it's funny. There, when, when Gerard came about, Everyone made a big deal about them being the first ones that we've been doing it for a year before they even got together. And some of our customers took offense to it online, I guess, and they they ended up getting into a little row with the the uh, person from the Daily News who wrote the article. <laughs> and uh, he basically uh, they they suggested that he do better research and be more mm. professional. And he took umbrage with that. <laughs> but it was so so we kind of, it's become become kind of a running joke. But um, as my when I sat down with my partners, we you know, spent some time talking about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do things. And, you know, being all the partners were under 30, except for me, I'm over 30. And um, they, uh, you know, we felt we wanted to, if we were doing everything sustainable, one day um, I said, you know, we really need to think about or talk about paying people a living wage because it's not... I had long thought the system of, of managing money in a restaurant is not sustainable. It's horrible. Can, yeah. can we take Please. a second and just talk Absolutely. about what that means <laughs> and it, like explain yeah. why it's such a broken and how and why it's such a broken system? Uh, I'd be happy to because okay. I think it's I think not only is it broken now and it's been broken for a while. Um, I think it's really visibly broken now. I think the solution that they're proposing is for, is breaking it further. But that's a whole nother story. I'll get into what I mean by that. Please do. But so I'll give you an example. If I walked into your business, you had a dry cleaning business and you delivered, you know, clean clothes to people and pick it up. And I walked into your business and I said, um, I'm going to come and work for you and take 20% of your gross revenue right off the top just for myself. And there's nothing you can do about it and no one else can share. And it's just for me. And, and uh, no matter who I've said that to, people look at me and laugh. And, you know, or say, you know, that's like ridiculous. But that's exactly what happens in a restaurant because the servers and, and in Philadelphia, servers average 20 percent gratuity, which is the highest in the country. And, and what's, what's the base salary for servers? Well, the, in Philadelphia? The, the, the minimum salary that you're allowed to charge by law or, or pay by law is 283 an hour. But that's a very that's in, you know, to say when servers say that that's very disingenuous because no server is working for 283 an hour. No server goes home with 283 an hour. And, you know, the and the law explicitly states that for the hours at which you are not receiving tips, you need to be paid minimum wage. So whether restaurant owners do that or not is another issue. And I'm the first one to say that many restaurant owners do not. But sticking just with the system itself, um, so that no no one the, the you know you have a great a huge disparity between workers in the back of the house who are working probably longer hours and and many of them are on salary because if you pay them for all the hours they work either you a couldn't get the work done b would have to pay have a whole nother shift somewhere and you know these guys work ten hours a day six days a week and and if you had to pay overtime and all the other things and the taxes no one would do it. And people, you believe me, if you think you're paying a lot for food now, do that math. And the, so... And know, what, do you know what the average salary for uh, just like a line cook is? Well, the average salary for a line cook now is about 12 bucks an hour if you're good at it. It's, it's probably closer to 8 to 10 in a lot of places. And that's less than I was making when I was a line cook like 30 years ago. So the, um, uh, you know, restaurant managers get paid thirty five thousand dollars a year. You know, young young guys. If you're a GM and you work for Steven Star, you get paid a lot more than that. 
but the assistant managers and all the the other managers don't get paid a lot more. And you know there are bonus structures and all those other things. And you know I I want to I'm still waiting to see my first bonus check for any of those <laughs> things. And so we have the twenty percent skim. So the you have the twenty percent skim. So you know if you if you take that money, uh, if you take that that money and you redistribute it, that twenty percent that you know that gratuity comes as a result of everyone's effort. It's a team effort. You know I used to argue with one of my co-workers who felt that that money would belong to him. He worked for it. He talked to the customer. He dealt with he all that front of the house. stress because he was front of the house. And it really used to like click something off in my brain because I would get so frustrated. Uh, like, you know, how do you think the dishes got cleaned that they put the food on? Where do you, who, how did the food get like prepped? You know, I'm sorry. I start talking, you know, like I'm yelling at people in the kitchen, but <laughs> the, the, it's, it, it's, a, uh, it's a passionate issue for me that, you know, everyone works together. The result of that, uh, uh, the, the service, the effort, the food that results in that tip, you know, you come in at three o'clock, you work four hours a day, five hours a day. And, you know, the, if you had a yard sale and you went to a flea market, you had stuff to sell, it would cost you $15 for a table. But if you're a waiter, you come into a restaurant that has tables already prepared for you, furniture, uh, alcohol, glassware, silverware, napery, all of those things cost money. And not only that, they cost money to maintain and replenish. And you don't pay for any of that. You walk in and you have all that handed to you. And then you get someone puts food on a plate and you have to walk out and talk to somebody and ask them, you know, what they want those guys to put on the plate. So believe me, I've worked more shifts than as a waiter than you can shake a stick at. But and, and, you know, this has nothing to do with me not respecting servers because I have a huge respect for servers. But in real life, everyone needs to share in that money. You, you can't. I know servers that declare they, that, that they made $80,000. So what do you think they really made? OK, they pay taxes on $80,000 a year. What did they really make? That's number one. Number two, that the guy who worked in the kitchen who made the food that they, you know, made those $80,000 worth of tips on. He made thirty thousand dollars a year if he was lucky. He probably made twenty eight or twenty seven or twenty five, and had to work six days a week and you know sixty hours a week to do it. And it's just not fair. And in my opinion, it's not sustainable. And I've been I said this for years before this whole hoo ha now about minimum wage and the fight for fifteen. And so the the you know for me the a better system is we we put tax and and service charge on the check. And we take that money, we distribute it fairly. So everyone starts with a base uh, salary, which is the minimum living wage in Philadelphia, which at the time was ten seventy five. Now it's over eleven dollars. And we, you know, made sure everybody got the best pay that they could. And you know, we weren't as successful as we would like. You know, the business model called for us to do more business than we did. So we ended up having to support things, and we weren't able to, you know, raise the standards. But the servers on on brunch days when we we're busy, the servers went home with two hundred dollars with their with their house pay. So that's a good brunch for any restaurant in the city, no matter what kind of food or whether you serve liquor or don't, which we didn't. So you know, I think that everybody did fine, and we allowed people to leave tips. If you wanted to leave something for your server, that went right to the servers. So most people left, um, you know, some small tip, which when you're busy, uh, adds up to a fair amount of money. You know, the servers would make about $100 on their house pay and about $100, you know, between the two of them, to sh- I mean, two, $200 to share, so $100 each, you know, for their brunch shifts. So, um, uh, you know, I think it worked out for every- in everyone's favor. And I think part of that is because uh, they got great service, that the, the, they really felt like people cared about them. Um, I think we could have done a better job of, you know, being timely and, you know, busting tables better and doing all those things better, but the customers felt cared about and and taken care of. So that's the only thing that really that really matters. You know, we could have refilled coffee better, but I think for the customers, you know, judging by the tips that were left, they they kind of got the system. Once once we'd been through, you know, there was an educational process. So the other part of that is now people are fighting for fifteen dollars an hour, and to me, that's just breaking the system in another direction because the it's it, it doesn't really solve any of the problems and i'll give you a good example the the minimum the living wage for someone 
for a single person in Philadelphia is 11 something an hour. And the living wage for that person with one child is $24 an hour. So if you pay them 15, wow. what are you really accomplishing? Right. And it, because that's the panacea, you know, we've said that's the panacea. Everyone can live on $15 an hour. That's not true. You're not really solving the problems. You're only solving problems for less than 25% of the, of the workforce. So because there are a lot more uh, people with families, and this is really who this is about. So if you go back in history and you study what the minimum wage was intended to do, it was intended to be a baseline for people who were stealing work from, from people who were enslaving them through company stores and so forth. You know, it, it was never meant to be a baseline pay. You'd be much better off. And this is the same thing. If we're going to fight for this now and force the country to everyone will accept $15, and when are we going to raise it again? 15 years from now? 30 years from now? What's the, what's the average over time? What damage will be done over time by making this a fight that everybody has to win right now? The, you're not recognizing a couple of things, one of which is what I just said, that the, the minimum, uh, the living wage for somebody with children is a lot more than it is, 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 was never meant to be, and is never going to be fulfilled by any kind of minimum wage. So it, unless, you, unless you tie the minimum wage, whatever that is, or the living wage, if you pay people a living wage and you establish what that is, and you establish different rates of pay, and you establish different rates of productivity, because I think that you know, if you have a young person coming out of school, high school, who's, let's say, 16 years old and they're getting their first job, that person should not is not going to be as productive as a, and as skilled. Let's put it this way. They may be as productive, but not as skilled as someone who's been in the job longer and has more experience with the workforce and knows how to get themselves to work on time and manage, you know, uh, difficulties that arise. And so there has to be in order to be fair, there would have to be some uh, variance in pay. The, the um, uh, you know, it's, it, $15 is just not a panacea, number one. And number two, it's, it's not, it's been co-opted by, the whole fight for 15 has been co-opted by the unions. I'm a member of, a withdrawn member of two unions. But in this case, the unions are just trying to use it as leverage to drive up their membership, which is dying off. And it's, it's they're being disingenuous about it. And they're not really doing anybody a service because they're going to, by the time you start paying union dues and you get $15 an hour, what are you going to net? Let's, let's look at what the net's going to be. And the, um, you know, you're still not really creating a living wage and you're still, you still have a system where, you know, we have to realize that, that people, that there are stages of job growth. When you come into the market and you have no skills, you should be paid at a, at a lower rate. And uh, you don't have families to support, and and that fifteen dollars an hour paying that person fifteen dollars an hour is just as unfair to the to the whole to the person who needs twenty four dollars an hour as it is paying them eight dollars an hour. So uh, you know the, it's too it's too simplistic a, an answer for a very complex problem. We need to have high, we need to pay higher wages. Wages in Philadelphia area have not risen in the last eight years and our buying power has decreased drastically and that's across the board that's not just restaurants correct no that's across the board right. the there's only one segment of the city where the wages have increased which is southwest philly and that's because the uh that's the the fastest the third fastest growing uh developing neighborhood in the country and really went, went southwest philly southwest philly wow and when when uh, you know, you have all these young people moving in there, even if they're only making $20,000 a year. There was nobody living there before. Right, they're drastically <laughs> raising the, the, um, the, the average income. So, you know, those, those figures tell, uh, don't tell quite a, a true story. It's but, really, it, it sounds like it is much more an issue of equity than it is about any particular dollar amount. Sure. And that there, there are, there have to be more ethical ways to pay people. Well, the, the, that's absolutely true. And I think that, we, you know, we, we're so busy nowadays, you know, we want one-stop answers for everything. We want, you know, uh, all right, we're not being paid enough. We need to be paid this. Okay, boom, done. That's it. Simple. No discussion. And, you know, it's a much more complex uh, situation that requires more discussion and more finesse. Um, we, we really also need to realize that we that the manufacturing age is over we're we're not that economy anymore there are the people that rely on those jobs 
We either need to find a way to create meaningful jobs for them. And one thing I would suggest uh, is that we have a whole lot of infrastructure in this country that needs to be repaired. You know, maybe we need to start doing some of those kinds of things. You know, work project. I hate to say that, but, you know, the WPA serves I was going to say, New Deal. New, new deal. deal. You know, it, 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 maybe we need some New Deal again. But the... Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the economy has changed. We don't make those kinds of jobs anymore. So people, unskilled workers coming out of high school, you know, why why are we paying them $15 an hour? Because they're, they're not educated. So, yes, everyone needs to be able to live on, on what they make. But I don't think that this economy, I don't think that part of the American dream, the American, the promise of the American dream is that, you know, if you're flipping hamburgers, for lack of it, you know that's the become the you know the uh, the hamburger flipper has become the the paradigm of all of this, or the you know the the keystone of this whole discussion, you know. But maybe those types of jobs were just meant to be entry level jobs, and they pay X, whatever that is, and maybe that's fifteen dollars an hour, but I don't think it should be. And I think that in my business, if I had to suddenly pay everybody fifteen dollars an hour, I'd be in big trouble. And uh, you know, the, the, there has to be some balance for small businesses. And this, you know, this is the, the tip of the iceberg of the whole business thing. Right. That, you know, you have giant corporations that don't pay taxes and, you know, little guys that are paying, you know, we're carrying the whole freight, the middle class, the small business. And that needs to be, paradigm needs to be reorganized. And, you know, it's, it's like everything else. The rules and regulations, there's a million rules and regulations. We're paying people to do all kinds of things. We have such big government. And, you know, I'm a Democrat, so I'm not, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's, it's not about that for me. It's, it's just that certain things don't make sense. You know, I can't, I have some people in my business, three people in my business that do administrative things. They also clean the bathroom, take out the trash, make deliveries, pick up shop. You know what I mean? We all do whatever has to be done. We don't have people sitting around going, hey, uh, go get some guy, go hire some guy to carry that thing because my job is to sit in the chair and do nothing, you know, until the bills come in. So, uh, you know, I think we need to make an effort if we, if we care, you know, in Philadelphia, we have, a, we have a disgrace, a shameful school system. Young people that want to get educated can't get educated. And, if, and we can't afford to fund that. So, you know, who, whose responsibility is that? When we're turning people out, uneducated people, into the workforce that are competing with us for jobs, whose fault is that? That's our fault. And we need to fix it. We need to take responsibility for that and say, this is a priority. We need to fix it. And, you know, there are so many businesses in this city that get tax breaks. Take some of that money. Pay your taxes. Everybody pay a fair share of taxes. And let's fix the school system. And this is a case, in my opinion, of us not having the will to do it. Somebody said this to me a long time ago, that that things don't change because we don't have the will. We don't care to do it. And I, I believe that's true. I think it's more true today than ever. And, you know, so let's educate people. Let's get them good jobs. Let's get them, let's, you know... Uh, retrain the people that that you know whose education failed them already, and you know not throw them aside. You know the the uh, I have a thirty year old son. The other day we were having a conversation about all of these sorts of things, and we talked about how the paradigm back in the day used to be that you know you went out and got a job, and you know, you knew what the, you knew kind of you were going to buy a car, you were going to do whatever you were going to do. And you, you knew, you know, okay, I'm not going to be rich, but I'll be okay. And, you know, and now the, that doesn't exist anymore. That ability to come out and say, hey, you know, I'm just going to get some job and work hard and do whatever the thing is, that, that's not available in, our, in, the, in the new economy. It's going to be less available every year and every generation as we go forward. And if, if we don't stop you know, trying to muscle each other and get, you know, just get what's ours. And just like the, you know, back in the day, it was the, the, the paradigm in the 80s was, hey, you know, greed is good. Get, you know, screw everybody else. Excuse my French. And, you know, get your thing. You have the most stuff. All right. You're the winner. And now look where we are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But but the yes, exactly. But but the, um, uh, you know, nowadays and the younger generation, the, the millennials have made a huge impact on the already on the on the. The, the, the business of business because they're not buying into that. And, you know, companies are having to shift their paradigms in order to, to attract workers. And, you know, to me, it's, um, I'm watching, 
you know, the, the dinosaurs kind of, you know, position themselves like this is where you're going to die. This is where you're going to be when you die. And that's okay. I think that, you know, uh, someone uh, said the other day that the millennials have adjusted their expectations to um, they don't want as much stuff. They don't need giant houses to feel good about themselves. They just want everybody to have enough. And that's a different, a whole different mindset for a generation than, you know, my generation. My generation was either we're just going to get high and live in the mountains or we wanted to own it all. We wanted to be, you know, we want to, it's, it's a monopoly. We wanted to win the monopoly game and only one person wins. Millions of people play, but only one person wins. And, and there are still those people speaking as a millennial. I feel like I can speak for everybody, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that those people still exist, the people who want no to opt question. out and the people who want everything. But right. I, I do, at least in my like circles and the people that and granted like I have a very particular group of people that I hang out with that are all fairly liberal and you know just are kind of keyed into those issues there's definitely a lot more emphasis on equity and on what is actually just absolutely and and, and hopefully we're going to be able to do make some kind of progress from what because I graduated college in 2008 so I I went into college thinking things were going to be one way, and then they weren't. Like immediately after graduation, that, right. it was, and the the classes that graduated after me have it even worse. And sure. you know, so so yeah. I mean, we could probably talk about this forever. <laughs> well, let me let me bring so, it back to the rest. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. One quick one quick thing, but I think that first of all, we don't. You know, the the older generation, my generation, matters less. Now, because no one's marketing to us directly, no one's marketing. People are marketing to the millennials, the unless you know it's retirement or traveling or something like that. But in general, um, we're you know we're moving off center stage, and the millennials are moving on to center stage. And and at some point, the economy will reflect that more even than it does now. And I think that you know the fact that you have so many young people starting business, you know, it's a very entrepreneurial generation. And the fact that people are using technology and whatever they're using, you know, to, okay, so maybe we only have two people in our business, but both of them make a living from the business. Then, you know, and the people that I see, the young people that I do business with in the, in the food business, in the food industry, are, you know, very cognizant of the fact that, all right, well, maybe we need to have less people, but we need to pay everybody well. We want to keep employees. I mean, they're different values you know, than, than there were a few years ago. So I think that you're already seeing, you know, the changes being implanted, the seeds are sown, the plants are growing there. They may be, you know, just saplings at this point, they may be little tiny baby plants, but they're definitely growing. And I think that, that, uh, you know, that's going to be the major contribution of your generation of the millennial generation. Um, you know, that, that you, you're going to establish the, the groundwork for that and, and, and build a framework on which that's going to grow. I certainly hope so. I mean, but you know, that's because I, I am yeah. one of, I am one of them, and obviously buy into all of that. So, if somebody wanted to find vegan commissary food and they were in Philadelphia, or if they're not in Philadelphia, do you <laughs> ship? Um, like, where could they find it? Well, we we would we've shipped um, we shipped a pie a a pumpkin pie to which was George Carlin's favorite to his his widow. Um, oh. For his birthday, which is our our first venture into into shipping food, mm. and it worked really well. Um, was very well. Is received. she vegan? She she is, and oh. George well, George was vegan as oh, well. Oh, I didn't realize that. And um, he if it, he was like a member of our family, so it was an honor. My sister happened to be friends with her, connect with her on Facebook, and um, so we ended up doing that, which was an honor for us. And um, so we we could ship if someone wanted us to. Um, we have some outlets in town right now. Uh, Last Drop, the Good Karma Cafes, Cafe V, um, Down Dog Healing, um, trying to not to leave anybody out, uh, Chapter House, and uh, there's a few other places that we sell, um, Eat a Pita, and we, we're on the verge of um, signing with a, a grocery store chain to do some prepared foods for them. So since we haven't, I'm not going to say anything more about it since we haven't signed the deal. Don't want to jinx it. We'll all, we'll all hope. Right. But yes, ho- we'll send good, good vibes, yeah. That we can, we will have an announcement shortly, you know, that, that we'll tell people where, you know, there'll be lots more outlets for our food. And we're kind of gearing up with that in mind right now. That sounds 
pretty good to me. Um, <laughs> and I can attest the food is fantastic. Thank I you have so much. loved everything that I've had from Vegan Commissary. That's really great. I appreciate that. And you guys are online and on social media? We are. Um, I try, my partners try and keep me out of the social media as much as possible, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Um, but we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and we have a website, which is vegancommissary.com. And uh, the best way to find us is come down and check out the store on Saturdays. It's really fun. It's very casual. Um, one of the people that works for me uh, has developed a, a wonderful line of, excuse me, bitters. And we have our own um, uh, Bloody Mary mix that we, oh. that we make. We make our own Worcestershire sauce. Oh, and, that's um, really cool. It's very cool. Yeah. And it's really great. It tastes really, huh. if you ate it, you couldn't tell the difference if you t- did a blind taste test. And so we make cocktails. So every Saturday we have a featured cocktail that we do. And uh, we've been giving out Bloody Marys. We, did, uh, we, we have uh, Vegnog. And um, which is great, and we sold a ton of it last weekend. It was very popular, but it's going to go away after Christmas. So, uh, so get what, on it. So get on it. Yeah. Right? And um, we have uh, some hot chocolate that we're working on, and some a couple other things. We have a, a nice line of beverages, and and uh, young man just started a uh, really nice kombucha business. He's also uh, selling his kombucha. It's called Funky Fresh, and uh, his name is Seth Glassman. He and he premiered his. The world premiere of Funky Fresh Kombucha was at our store on a Saturday. Cool. And we have uh, this Saturday a um, young woman that makes nudie bars. They're um, really great energy bars. all uh, With a super good name. Dried fruits. Absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. And so she's coming to do a sampling of that this Saturday. So we always have some fun things going on in the store. And it's just really kind of relaxed, fun environment. We talk food. You know, people hang out. We listen to music. You know, it's very casual and and uh, but it's a lot of fun. We always really get a kick out of the customers, and and uh, it's a fun day. Yeah, that sounds and great. Can take home lots of good food, and that that's like the best. <laughs> that's the best thing is that you, then you get to come home and eat more food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for talking oh, with my me. Pleasure. It was a great. You you did a great interview. It was really nice to connect with you oh. about uh, the history of of the business and a, and a chance to talk a little bit about you know my history and how I got into this. So great interview. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Tegan Goes Vegan is produced by Tegan and Nathan Karuna. Music is by Amanda D'Amato. You can find this and all other episodes on iTunes and at TeganGoesVegan.com. You can also find the show on Twitter and Pinterest at TeganGoesVegan. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next time with more great conversations with vegans. <laughs>